0: People are willing to fight and die for their moral beliefs. You're not going to be that successful if you expect people to move a lot on those. Instead, meet them where they are, with what they value, and make the case for why they could be a part of your political coalition.
1: Welcome to Politicology. I'm Ron Steslow. For years, partisanship and increasingly negative partisanship, as we call it, or partisan animosity, has been rising, uh, but reached a fever pitch in the 2020 election and the January 6th insurrection. What are the psychological forces driving that division? What's causing Americans to vote for anti democracy candidates? And what can we do to turn down the heat a bit and save our democracy? I'm going to talk about all this and more with Rob Willer. Rob is a professor in the departments of sociology, psychology, and the Graduate School of Business at Stanford University. He's also the director of the Polarization and Social Change Lab and the co-director of the Center on Philanthropy and Civil Society. The primary area of his research looks at the social and psychological forces that are shaping Americans' political attitudes, and his research has been covered in The New York Times, The Wall Street Journal, USA Today, The Washington Post, Slate, Times, CNN, and NBC Nightly News. He's also leading the research into the strengthening democracy challenge. This is what we're going to spend a lot of time talking about today. Rob, thank you for making the time and welcome to Politicology. Absolutely.
0: It's a pleasure to be here, Rob.
1: We were just talking about how politicology seems to be over-indexing for Stanford professors these days. We've had quite a few of your colleagues on, and, uh, and our listeners are, are um, getting a Stanford education. Uh, That's great. You pick some good <laughs> ones. I'll try
0: to <laughs> you know, live up to the standard.
1: Episode by episode. So before we get into uh, the Strengthening Democracy Challenge, why don't we have you share a little bit about your personal background, talk about why you started to look at polarization in the first place.
0: Yeah, I mean, at a, at a personal level, my own experience that led me to take polarization threats to democratic stability really seriously uh, was probably, probably growing up in primarily red states, Kansas, South Carolina, but then in middle life, <laughs> finding myself in uh, Ithaca, New York and Berkeley, California, which by some measures are literally the two most liberal communities in America. And it just made me feel very vividly how divided our country is, the extent to which people are really in just completely different political and moral worlds uh, and and that those divisions are are really hard to handle. It's it's a deeply divided and pluralistic society in need of rigorous thought and strategy to keep it together.
1: So how have you and your team then seen polarization growing over the last several years? our listeners will be familiar with the, you know, the distinction between partisanship and ne- negative partisanship. Now, because we've talked about it a lot on the show, um, and now, I mean, one of the more recent phenomenons in uh, applied politics is the degree to which negative partisanship is determining the outcome of elections, as opposed to, you know, um, positive. We'll positive partisanship. Um, how have you seen those two trends um, diverge and polarization grow over the last several years?
0: Yeah, well, you really nailed it. Um, the biggest trend that's relevant to our research that's been growing is the the rise in partisan animosity, or, or some folks call it affective polarization. This is negative attitudes that Republicans have towards Democrats and Democrats have towards Republicans, steadily increasing over the last basically half century, uh, and is reaching, you know, really acute levels at, at this stage. You know, people happily report that they would uh, discriminate against members of the other party in employment settings. People, you know, it's a major preference for dating. It's a preference uh, for who you want to join your family, who you want to marry your children. Uh, it's just just a huge, huge divide cleaving the middle of our, our country. That's been steadily increasing. Another couple trends that are uh, concerning, which we actually. We've been measuring these more recently, so we're not actually sure about the trend exactly. We're more sure that the, the level is concerning. Uh, our levels of support for political violence in the U.S. amongst Democrats or Republicans are at not high levels, but at concerning levels, uh, as we see with you know some significant examples of political violence out in the world. And then uh, support for... Undemocratic political candidates is also at a concerning level. So, actually, Republicans and Democrats report that they would still vote for a candidate from their party that broke significant democratic norms, uh, you know, over a candidate from the other party. And this really cuts to the heart of how polarization can destabilize democracy. As if you hate the other side so much then you won't scrutinize the candidates from your own party. You won't attend to their faults because there's really not an option to to stay home or vote for the the other side uh, if you really despise the other side. It's it's a war and you're just not looking at at the blemishes and imperfections of the folks on your side.
1: Okay. So lest anyone uh be concerned that we are um you know both sides in what is you know pretty obviously a a, a lopsided equation here. Can you um, give us a sense from the data you found of um, to what extent Republicans versus Democrats uh, have the tendency to you know, favor anti-Democratic candidates or uh, harbor um, negative partisanship, partisan animosity, be open to political violence. What do those numbers look like?
0: Yeah. Yeah. Thanks. I, what we find in our research and others find in their research is that uh, Democrats and Republicans have surprisingly overlapping views on you know, how much they dislike the other side, how much they support bipartisan you know, cooperation, how much they would vote for an undemocratic candidate from their party. Uh, they have really different reasons. And I think some of those reasons on, I think the reasons on one side are better than the reasons on the other personally. Uh, but in terms of like levels of vitriol, you see similar levels that are reported on both sides, and in fact, the bigger difference is between a strong partisan and a weak partisan uh, than between a Democrat and a Republican. Now, an important thing to say is that Republicans do report in in our study a little more support for undemocratic candidates, a little more opposition to bipartisanship, a little bit more partisan animosity. Uh, so that is true. But again, if you wanted to guess what an individual person's levels were of those, you'd be better off knowing. How strongly they identified with whichever party than knowing which party they identified with, if that makes sense. Now, what you might then ask is, well, why does it? Why is it in 2022 the threats to democracy are coming primarily from the right? I'm sure someone on the right would would quibble with this, but like, but my read on this is it's uh, especially with the midterms. Like, what's most at stake is election denying candidates being elected to office on the Republican side, and I think the difference is in a nutshell that. Republican politicians some many Republican politicians have used misinformation and you know have, have lined up on this uh, big lie frankly uh, and that they're the ones harnessing that the that potential for undemocratic that undemocratic sentiment on the Republican side is being harnessed by Republican leaders and it's not by Democratic leaders so I, I think the way to kind of think about democratic attitudes is if it's a polarized society where people care a lot about their party for good or bad reasons, it they are reluctant to move off of candidates that have flaws on their side. And sometimes elites capitalize on that and harness it to do wrong, uh, do bad things and undermine democracy. And sometimes they don't. And it's really important that they don't. And we're seeing one side is harnessing that, that sentiment that sits there in a polarized society and the other side, thankfully, is not. Hmm.
1: Can I ask you a sort of uh, disjointed follow up to that question yeah, this This thought comes to mind occasionally. I haven't really um uh explored it uh too much, but one it seems to me that one risk that creates um with you know Democrats championing the rule of law democratic norms um you know safe sound free fair elections et cetera. Um, becoming the party of democracy, small D democracy, um, sort of creates an aura of righteousness around the big D democratic party. And I worry that that righteousness then is applied to every other policy priority that they want um, to get done. And it sort of extends the same kind of of moral righteousness around upholding democratic norms uh, and principles to a democratic, a left-leaning, large D democratic left-leaning policy agenda, which I think is really, really dangerous and conservatives would be right to resist that. We saw some evidence of this in Joe Biden's speech in Philadelphia, um, where my biggest complaint was not the optics, but the way he conflated um you know, some of his recent policy achievements with um, upholding democracy and free and fair elections. And I start, started to see the beginning of that, and it really alarmed me. Um, he's right on the merits as he talks about uh, the Republican Party of course, but um, but as a, as a as a framing device, um, and we're talking about political communication and marketing here, um, and emotionally driven judgments, how do you think about that um is it something you thought about has it has it entered into your research at all and yeah any thoughts well
0: I, I really agree with you that I think it's really important that we do everything we can to keep rules of the game democratic principles stuff in one bucket in people's heads and polarized political issues that we're debating and people are trying to get super majorities sufficient to pass legislation on and so on uh separating these I think is really important I have really strong feelings, as I'm sure President Biden does about both. Uh, but the danger is that if you allow the fundamental rules of the game to become heavily polarized and just part of liberal and conservative ideologies or, or the party party's platforms, now you have a situation where you're maxing out at like 60% support for the rules of the game. And that is a real breeding ground for some sort of backsliding into autocracy or something. So... I yeah I see it the same way you do and I think that you know in our lab we find that one effective way to intervene on Ameri- or on on Republicans' election confidence is to platform Republican leaders who have endorsed uh, for, you know the election of tw- the 2020 election result and elections in general and that can improve you know maybe just five percent or so uh, Republicans in the mass public their faith in elections and. What this says to me, and I don't know of any other interventions that have been shown to affect that, is that we really need to keep this bipartisan. Like Everybody knows the Democrats are supporting elections and what their opinions are. Less known is are the views of moderate Republicans, or primarily moderate Republicans who uh, do believe in the rules of the game, do believe that the elections are being conducted fairly. We've got to help those voices be heard and Democrats should work with them in tandem as much as they possibly can uh, because we have to project an aura of consensus and fundamental rules of the game around uh, democratic principles.
1: Thank you for doing that. Sorry for the curveball, but I think that's, um, it's really, really important to do. I just, it just struck me that like, oh, like actually we're talking about framing and that's, that is the, that is, that is the whole thing. And there's big risk of bleed there. Yeah. And I can imagine a critic Um,
0: saying, well, yeah, but we also want Unanimity on abortion, too. And I guess on yeah, that, of I course would say you do, but you, we're not going to get you don't get it. to ride the
1: coattails of democracy <laughs> yeah. to do yeah, that. Like democracy, yeah, democracy, you have
0: that. You could make a play for like 90 plus percent of people agree on this stuff. That's not available in the short term on abortion, you know. Like, and so if you have that, grab it, you know.
1: I want to know a little bit more about the difference in attitudes. You, you mentioned like joining your family. Right, I was wondering aloud on a recent politicology episode. I think this was on a weekly roundup about what was actually now more controversial. Right, when you're considering bringing someone into a family, marrying them. Right, there's all the they're, they're, they're the family politics and drama of a brand new person entering the the familial tribe. Right, and I was wondering if it was now more or less controversial to bring someone of an opposite party than it would have been, say. Uh, to bring a you know to, to bring a same sex partner into the family or to or or an interracial marriage right for example which has historically been so controversial and so but our social norms have moved on from those two things and it seems to me now at times that it's more controversial to think about marrying someone outside of your party than it is outside of your um, traditional religious or social norms yeah what, have, what yeah. do you know about that.
0: No, that's exactly right. You know, uh, levels of opposition to interracial marriage in your family, so like people reporting that they would not want their son or daughter to marry someone of a different race or ethnicity, uh, that th- those numbers were 40, 50% in the late 1960s. And then the same preference around party was down, I believe, around 10% or less. You know, it was like really low levels of concern about this. Now those those numbers are basically flipped to where the the preference for your child not to marry somebody from the other party or support of the other party is up around 50%. And now the opposition to the interracial marriage that's reported anyway is down around 10 or less. So that's, you know, that's the situation. It's a weird situation where it's like we need to have a guess who's coming to dinner kind of cultural moment around politics, you know. Um, and this is going to be harder to shake because, I mean, in, in my opinion, unlike race and ethnicity, politics really does encode meaningful differences of morality and perspective. I mean, not that that isn't associated with race and ethnicity in the U.S., but, um, you know, the prejudice was was very shallow. And prejudice around politics, you know, is connected to real issues that matter. So it's going gonna, it's gonna to be tough to fix.
1: What is the Strengthening Democracy Challenge? Why did you decide to launch it? give us the primer.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So we were really concerned about the levels of support for partisan violence, you know, anti-democratic attitudes and partisan animosity in the American general public. And usually the way researchers like myself and the, the folks that are in my lab at Stanford approach problems like this is to say, well, what's our best idea or our couple best ideas? Let's go out and test it as well as we can make a case for it in an academic journal, publish and, and move on. But these are problems we really cared a lot about. And we were, mo- we were more interested in just getting the right answer than whether it was our answer. And so we were like, okay, how would you approach this problem if you really just wanted to get the best answers you could and evaluate them as rigorously as you could? So we took a kind of totally backwards approach and crowdsourced the problem. We reached out through our social networks and on social media to, uh, to, to researchers. Academic and non academic, but also folks in the bridging community, which is, uh, you know. Folks that work in organizations like, let's say, Living Room Conversations or Open Mind or ProCon—I don't know if you've heard of these—listen uh, yes, first. Open mind for
1: sure. Variety mm-hmm. of
0: organizations that are trying to bridge political <clears throat> divides of various sorts in the country and shore up democratic attitudes. So we went out to that community as well, went out to you know other activist groups, journalists, all sorts of folks, and said, "Send us your best ideas about things that could uh, somehow change Americans' levels of." you know, support for undemocratic practices, partisan violence and partisan animosity. And the big one, the one restriction, which is a big restriction, is that whatever people submitted to this challenge that we organized, it had to be something that someone could experience online in less than eight minutes. Mm. And the reason for that restriction yeah. is just so that we could implement it in a in a large scale test in a parallel way with the other ideas that people submitted. So it's a big restriction. But it actually, you know, people were able to submit a variety of you know, modes of doing, you know, of intervening with people. So, videos, audio, chatbot interactions, co- you know, working with somebody from the other party on a joint task, reading stuff, you know, there's a bunch of different ways people were very creative within that constraint. So, we put out this call and we were totally blown away by the level of enthusiasm and participation we got over 250 submissions from more than 400 people in 17 countries. It went way past just academics that study these things into activist and other spaces. From this, we-
1: Surprise, a lot of people care about democracy. Yeah. (laughs) Sorry. A lot of
0: people are wigging out about democracy as they should be. uh, And we're really motivated to do something, you know, and want to participate. So it was was great. It was really great and itself a good sign about American democracy, I think. The- you know so we had to overhaul our whole system we were thinking we'd get like 40 submissions so we built out our advisory board of practitioners and academics and sat down tried to find the very best ideas that were submitted we we culled this until we got down to 25 ideas and then we tested those in parallel in What was one of the largest experiments of this of this sort ever conducted? So it had thirty-two thousand people, so about the size of the population of Ithaca, New York, uh, took part in this study. And these thirty-two thousand people, they kind of they come at the study, and then they are randomly assigned to experience one of the twenty-five ideas that we picked. Or a control condition where they didn't really experience anything, so like a placebo. And then we evaluated their democratic attitudes, support for political violence, uh, partisan animosity, and a bunch of other stuff that we were interested in on surveys at the end, which is how these things get measured. Uh, these people were recruited through the internet, so it's like the... presidential approval polling that you usually see. It's that that sort of uh, way of gathering data. And the results were really interesting. We actually found really big differences between these ideas in terms of how effective they were for improving Americans' democratic attitudes and partisan animosity.
1: So I want to pause for just a quick second for the nerds out there to underscore the significance of that sample size, 32,000 people in your sample. the methodological rigor that combined with the scale of that experiment is astounding um when i think about um instructive like actually useful um instruments that we've deployed in practice in political campaigns right um you're looking for a sample size on a statewide of maybe 500 800 ideally right respondents to a survey that's going to tell you something meaningful or if, a, if you're doing a national modeling project you might want you know 5000 people 32000 people in 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 this study is 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 amazing so i just want to plant that flag for people who are thinking well this is just one study and there's a bunch of studies and whatever this is actually um a huge achievement so Hats off to you for that. And also, I just want people to be aware um, of how instructive the findings should be because of that. So go go
0: ahead. Yeah, and you, that was kind of our goal was normally the way uh, research along these lines proceeds is academics from a bunch of different fields test their ideas. They're tested in totally different samples with totally different measures they're, they come from different disciplines psychology, political science, sociology. They don't talk to each other as much as they should. And they publish, and you can't compare the results clearly. And we wanted, and then also the practitioners who have applied insights on this that are out in the world talking to Democrats and Republicans, working on people's attitudes, working on these problems. They don't participate at all in this literature, and their ideas are not heard. And so we wanted to come in and... Because they're just hacks. Right. Yes, exactly. All they
1: do is win campaigns. Yeah, Don't listen to them. Right. That's right. That's Yeah. All they do is work on this every day
0: and talk to the actual people right. involved. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So we were like, okay, how could we intervene in this space and do, you know, five years worth of work in one study, you know, that this you know, generate that level of knowledge and be able to compare these ideas against each other because they're run side by side. So some of the results that we got, I think, are really interesting. I'll, I'll start with the democratic attitudes because that's, I think, what I care most about here in 2022. Uh, for. Obvious reasons, and maybe the the most important measure we had of democratic attitudes was support for undemocratic candidates. So, how likely would you be? If we ask questions like this: How likely would you be to support a candidate from your party for, let's say, president who had, uh, you know, restricted voting uh, polling places in areas that support. Uh, the other party, or uh, had uh, per, you know persecuted journalists in some some way, or intimidated journalists, or refused to acknowledge the results of an election that their party had lost. So, kind of these canonical anti-democratic moves that that leaders sometimes make that contribute to democratic backsliding in, in really serious ways. The typical American partisan will say, "I will still vote for my candidate," most likely, but a substantial number of people say, "I might not," and we want to basically see. How do you increase that number, or how do you increase the the likelihood that people would defect from an in party candidate who's breaking basic rules of democracy?
1: Yeah, this was one of the things that I thought was really interesting um, from the op ed you wrote in the Washington Post, which is that um, that that partisan American partisans voting is um, is more influenced by animosity toward the other party, right? Negative partisanship, but it's highly correlated with. Um, the 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 likelihood to support an anti-democratic candidate and like because we're not this is not just like the classroom theory we're also seeing democrats now prop up anti-democratic candidates in republican primaries around the country some of them have won right so so i so i want people to start connecting the dots between Um, the theory that we're talking about from your study and also what we have been paying attention to in real life in the political landscape. We've talked about this on the show. Some people get upset that it's, you know, that it's Democrats don't look good doing this. Some of them actually write in and they're quite cynical and they think, well, no, this is actually the way to avoid democratic catastrophe is by, you know, playing the game effectively by propping up these people because they'll be easier to beat, which I think is, um, you know, playing with really really dangerous fire um so I wanted to just hear from you um with any of your various hats how you think about the finding um of of that correlation with what we're seeing play out now in um in primaries and uh and especially some of these um key elections positions secretary of state and uh and you know uh, Board of elections posts that we're seeing trying to be taken over by Um, Election deniers around the country.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, so many great threads here to to pull on. Um, So, first of all, I'll just say I also think that that's playing with fire, in part because you you may think when you help uh, an anti-democratic candidate, or we'll just say an election denying candidate, get nominated, that you're more likely to win. And that's that's you know, if the polling says that, then that's probably true. Uh, So, I get the strategic temptation, but you're also doing actual damage to democratic norms. In the in that region, and possibly nationally as well, and that that's something that (laughs) that is bad. That is that is going to happen if you uh, uh, make more prominent and successful anti-democratic candidates. It's hard to measure, but it's real. It's real, and we have to take it really seriously. So, to the other thread, uh, one thing that was really interesting that we learned from the challenge, and I want to talk to you in a little bit, you know, about like specific ideas that did really well,
1: specific interventions. Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. But one thing just theoretically that was really interesting was that we got a much clearer sense of what are the forces that lead people to support undemocratic candidates. And basically there were two big causes that we found that were both causes that increase people's willingness to support undemocratic candidates and are also the causes you want to, you know, like kind of the levers you want to pull on to reduce that. So one is how much do people care about undemocratic practices? That's kind of obvious, right? Like, so the more you are worried about Somebody being an election denier, the more likely you are to vote against somebody from your party for doing election denying. Almost tautological. The other one's less obvious. It's this negative partisanship factor. It's this uh, partisan animosity factor. This one's not, it wasn't clearly established in the literature, but like the more you hate the other party, the more you also are willing to tolerate undemocratic practices from candidates from your party. Uh, why? Because you don't want to help the other side by by voting for them or staying home. And so we had this clarity that's really two things. And if you if you really wanted to get get out there and stamp out on democratic candidates, or just, you know, get them out of out of the equation that you'd want to pull both these levers as hard as you could. Get Americans to care more about democratic principles, clarify for them what they are. And then the other thing would be try to turn down the animosity that people feel towards their rival partisans, which is not easy, um, but it can help on this problem. Also wanted to say one other thing about how I understand the democratic problems we're facing in, in, in the midterm elections. I think of it as really two problems right now. And, and it should be said that the democratic problems we're facing the midterms here are primarily on the Republican side. It's a Republican side that's got a whole bunch of election denying candidates. A lot of people that uh, maybe aren't explicitly denying the results of the 2020 election, but are uh, not willing to endorse them either. And a lot of these people, as you pointed out, are secretaries of state at the state level. This is really concerning. They're going to run the 2024 election. It's not hard to see some sort of scenario where a bunch of election deniers get elected secretaries of state position. They're in charge of uh, administering vote counts in 2024. They do things they should not be doing. All of a sudden, we have chaos, competing vote totals and and, and outcomes in critical purple states. Now now we have a recipe for potential political violence in the streets, rival claims to victory that are hard to sort out, and we have major problems. So this is like really, really critical that these folks not win, in my opinion. So, and the support that they're getting, I think, can be categorized into two buckets. So one problem we have is a misinformation problem. So there's a bunch of folks on the Republican side where, who have invested trust in leaders who are saying that the 2020 election was rigged especially Donald Trump is saying this, of course. And for those folks, they, they, they're believing it because the people they trust are saying it. That's a pretty natural thing to do, although they shouldn't be <laughs> trusting the folks saying this. Uh, and they should be scrutinizing these claims much more rigorously.
1: Like it's to elite cues. Exactly, you know? Ex-
0: precisely. And, and, and in fact, research from my lab has shown the only thing we know that can turn this down in the academic literature right now is promoting the elites on the Republican side who have said, no, the election was legitimate. So folks like Mitch McConnell, Liz Cheney, et cetera. And, and so for those people, the problem is a misinformation problem. We have some tools for addressing misinformation, promoting, you know, these, these conservative voices that are going the other way that can be helpful. Uh, you know, we also know nudging people to think more rigorously about the information they're consuming is also helpful, but you know, Misinformation's a tough, tough problem. Just want to be clear. Then we have this other problem of people who do see the situation for what it is. They see that this secretary of state uh, that's Republican comes from their own party. They're a Republican. They're saying the election wasn't legitimate. The voter knows differently. They believe that the election was legitimate and now they got to make a choice. And it's honestly a tough choice. Do you stick with your party or do you draw a line and say, this is, you know, this is a, this is a line that cannot be crossed. We have bright lines in democracy and I'm going to stay home or I'm going to skip that line on the ballot or vote the other way. And it's, people don't do that at a very high rate on either side, honestly. And that's what we need to turn up. And we have maybe more insights, honestly, on how to work on that problem uh, of just getting people to weight the democratic stakes more uh, than we know about the misinformation problem, which is a real tough one.
1: Okay I want to get into those uh those interventions and 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 how they could work. One thing I mean on the secretary of state's races it's just you know uh man it's just so frustrating to me that one of the most what has history in my career had been it was the the most unsexy position that you could run for? It's just mechanical, like you run elections, you count the votes, you announce who won, and that's your job and just make sure it's secure and safe and guess what like nobody really cares about any most people didn't really care, and now it has become one of the most contentious posts ever and you're the degree to which people um are being asked to Leave their tribe behind in favor of democratic norms and ideals and principles that they have not been in touch with for a very long time. Uh, it just makes this such an intractable problem because it's never, it's not, it's only recently entered the zeitgeist of things that we care about, right? That a lot of people care about. So I think you're exactly
0: right. It's <sighs> frustration. It, it's incredibly yeah. frustrating and scary. And yeah, it is not a position you want to be a sexy, glamorous, political position.
1: You don't want anybody to know who you are. Like, you know, like there's, it should not be a, yeah, you're, 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 you're an administrator. One of the interventions that was effective uh, was a video of the two candidates for Governor Utah. Uh, This was in 2020. They made a video together. Um, We have a clip of that. Why don't we play that?
2: I'm Spencer Cox, your Republican candidate for Utah Governor. And I'm Chris Peterson, your Democratic candidate for governor. We are currently in the final days of campaigning against each other. But our common values transcend our political differences, and the strength of our nation rests on our ability to see that. We are both equally dedicated to the American values of democracy, liberty, and justice for all people. We just have different opinions on how to achieve those ideals. But today, we are setting aside those differences to deliver a message that is critical for the health of our nation. That whether you vote by mail or in person, we will fully support the results of the upcoming presidential election, regardless of the outcome. Although we sit on different sides of the aisle, we are both committed to American civility and a peaceful transition of power. And we hope Utah will be an example to the nation. Because that is what our country is built on. Please stand with us on behalf of our great state and nation. My name's Spencer Cox. And I'm Chris Peterson. And we We approve approve this message.
1: We approved this message. I remember when I heard this in 2020 thinking, oh, that's so cute. It's so Utah. And <laughs> and uh, and I wondered, is this going to work? And now mm-hmm. we have some data about whether it works. So can you tell us about how the intervention worked, how you measured it, and how this impacted Partisan animosity and the likelihood of supporting undemocratic candidates.
0: Sure, sure, yeah. So, um, so we call this the Utah cues video, and uh, because it's an example of elite cues, you know, pl- politically influential people from both parties in this case, bipartisan cue, uh, you know, supporting basic rules of democracy, saying that they'll honor the results of the election. And uh, what we found was that if people watch this video, they reported uh, less support for undemocratic practices. Less support for undemocratic candidates and also warmer feelings towards supporters of the other party. Now it wasn't, you know, massively transformative, but it's also kind of a minimal test if you think about it. Like they're watching a video from an election that's already happened from two candidates that the vast majority of these people, you know, are not from that state and maybe and probably have not heard of. Uh, so you could imagine implementing this at scale with videos that fit people's regions better, that are more contemporary that are updated a bit and, and whatnot. And people have seen them more than once, you know, or more than one kind, you know, seeing these bipartisan endorsements of basic democratic principles. That's one of the most obvious scalable ways you could implement the findings from our challenge and make real forward progress because it's, it's entirely... Plausible that you could uh, get a major social media platform, for example, to commit to promoting content like this because it's not partisan; it's bipartisan, and really, it's not even partisan. It's you know endorsing basic rules of elections, and you could also imagine. Setting up, uh, you know, campaign or recruiting major donors to political campaigns who don't want to see Democrat, democracy destabilized. After all, they're giving to an election structure. They obviously are invested in elections. You could imagine getting Democrat and Republican donors to earmark funds for, you know, you. I'm donating these funds provided that you are willing to participate in a video, in producing a video like this. And if you do, you get my big donation. The organizations could do that. Individual donors could do that. So it seems like something that could actually really spread uh, and something that, that makes a difference. And it makes a difference because it surfaces democratic norms that we've taken for granted for 150 years that we didn't have to explicitly acknowledge and re articulate. But now our leaders really do because they're in question.
1: That we've taken out of high school classrooms because we've gotten rid of civics, but that's a different uh that's a different podcast episode. Um so by the way, there's one on the on the social media platform piece, I think it's a I mean, this is something that they should all be chomping at to do because of all the penance that they have to pay for their role in spreading misinformation and um and helping to create the um the situation we're in in the first place. So I think that's a really good call. There should be some pressure on them to 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 fund stuff like this, one flaw or one potential challenge here is like these. These were two candidates who were at the top of the ticket in their state, with the exception of the presidency, and uh, on uh, you know opposing campaigns who committed to do this. That's going to be exceedingly rare in almost every you know state everywhere going forward. Have you looked into who are possible surrogates for these? Does it have to be the candidates running? How could it be applied? For example. In a race like Arizona, where Carrie Lake, uh, who's running for governor, uh, election denier, uh, MAGA Republican, said that if she didn't win the primary, it was rigged, and she said that she overcame the rigging when she did win the primary. Right? Um, all all of this she's saying with a straight face. So
0: so concerning.
1: Yeah. Can, can you talk about how you can achieve the same uh, the same effect with potentially uh, different surrogates who aren't on the ballot but do represent? Um, different sides of the equation.
0: Absolutely. I mean, I think you just do the best you can. You know, like if you, if you had to just get two people that you were pretty confident you could get uh, to do it because they're they're on the right side on, on democratic principles and elections, I, you could get, in principle, George W. Bush and Barack Obama to do something like this. And uh, not a lot of Americans over age 40 that didn't vote for one of those people at some point in their adult lives, uh, that are, that are voters that are going to be turning out in 2020 or sorry, 2022. So, you know, you could produce content like that, that would kind of be applicable anywhere. And the you know vast majority of people would resonate to some extent with at least one of those figures. Um, you also could, you know, settle for the best state race where you can get two people, um, in a couple, you know, in a handful of states, there's not going to be any prominent race where you could get both, both participants, even if, you had campaign donors that were supporting you by by pressing uh, the candidates to do it. But in most states, I think you you could get uh, you know a prominent race to participate. Uh, maybe maybe I'm being overly optimistic on this, but I think that this is a place where donors could really, really help uh, by pressing people into a situation where it's in their campaign self-interest.
1: The challenge is that as the Republican Party, as you mentioned earlier, becomes exceedingly um, disillusioned with democracy as an idea. Uh, it's it's becoming baked into the identity, right? We, that that um, that elections are that they would never just do it, right? Because it's too antithetical to the brand to the campaign message. So I think that resistance is maybe you could today, maybe this year, maybe twenty twenty four. I I doubt it if things continue on the trajectory. But well, that um, I'll put the. Bad I mean, comment. that's
0: even a, de- <laughs> a threat to democracy. We haven't even talked about. I think is people who are explicitly confronting democracy as a political institution and saying, actually, we should be open to alternatives because you can imagine a continuum That's here. a whole different... Yeah, thing. that's like a whole other yeah. animal, right? Because there's there's the yeah. folks that see that the election wasn't rigged, see we have de- democracy problems among republic uh, on the Republican side, still are tempted to vote Republican because the Republican party represents their values, policies, what have you. Then you got the people that are denying the election. They're taking that, you know, as gospel for them, voting Republican uh, for an election denying Republican candidate is the pro democracy move you know because this, this is somebody who 's calling out a stolen election that 's actually the democratic thing to do then you got some folks who are actually considering orban like alternatives to democracy that 's super scary and yeah. uh,
1: that 's super yeah. scary, but yeah. those those people. You know, uh, that's a completely different breed, and you know, how should I put it? The sunlight still burns their skin. We'll put it that way, <laughs> right? We have not yet reached a point where it's uh, it's acceptable uh, in, in any in any you know, significant tribe to um, right to say down with democracy. Yeah, right? everybody right now I is agree. saying I'm for democracy. They just have different ideas of what that means, and some of those ideas are perverse. But
0: most um, but we haven't yet
1: reached a point where yeah, but. Right. Hey, like, don't hold your breath. You know, um,
0: it's starting, uh, and I am concerned yeah, about it where is, it'll go. It
1: is starting. Um, so, I was a big fan of the Heineken ad when it came out a couple of years ago, um, and that was one of the other interventions I wanted to talk about. Um, but because it's so, I would play a clip of it. But because it's so, um, there's so many visual cues and body language, uh, that, you know, that carry the carry the video. Um, instead, can you just sort of describe? that video and outline, uh, then how it reduced partisan animosity.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, this is a video that was called, I I believe, worlds apart that Heineken, the UK Heineken, uh, outfit made in 2017 in the wake of the Brexit vote. And it's a video where they took three pairs of ideologically divided, uh, you know, British people, and put them in a room with pints of beer and had them talk through their differences. And, you know, I'm sure they ran several pairs of people to get good content, but they really got good content. You know, they got liberal and conservative folks, uh, these pairs of folks, to talk through their differences, to, th- to find common ground, to gradually finish their beers, and, uh, you know, honestly, the, the, the video is like pretty heartwarming because it shows you this potential for people to overcome, you know, in one case, anti-trans prejudice to really connect with uh, a trans woman and develop a, you know, what seems like a sincere and authentic friendship. You know, it, it gives you a sense that people could, if they have the right face-to-face experience. Establish some common ground and 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 develop some mutual respect while still disagreeing on a bunch of issues, uh, which is what you need in a in a society. You know you need to have reason debate about the issues if if at all possible. And what we found was that if you, you know, one of the people uh, that was a su- submitter to our challenge basically just submitted that video, and it was the idea that was most effective in reducing partisan animosity amongst American Democrats and Republicans. And again, this is notable because it was you know. It was, Uh, It had been made four or five years earlier when we ran the study. It was set in the UK, not even the US. Uh, But it was so good at showing that common ground is possible, that people can find humanity amongst people on the other side, even while disagreeing on things, and and just make the disagreements more productive and more respectful. Uh, It was so transformative, people's uh, perceptions of how those conversations can go, that that it led the pack on reductions of partisan animosity.
1: I, um, we, we should probably know, we'll put the link to that and both of these videos in the show notes. And so if you want to pause and go watch that and then come back, a lot of this will make a lot of sense to you. It's not that long, just a couple minutes. And research shows
0: that your, your partisan animosity and anti-democratic attitudes will go down as a result.
1: There we go. Um, so I, I thought it was interesting, you know, just, just showing people the difference between their assumptions about how members of the other party would talk about them and the reality Lowered their animosity. This was one of the. Um, this is also one of the experiments that you ran. Dems were saying that uh, most Republicans would think a Democrat wanted totally open borders, but the reality is much different. Um, and members of both parties think that people from the other party would say that they were less human. When in fact, none of the subjects said that. Um, can you explain what's at play there and how it can feed into the negative partisanship?
0: Yeah, yeah, ex- yeah. This is the, you describe it perfectly. So there were a number of interventions that we tested that sought to uh, correct people's inaccurate stereotypes. Of the views, beliefs, qualities of uh, supporters of the other side. Basically, these interventions tried to come in, on, uh, they tried to leverage a major inefficiency in political perception, which is that just Americans on both sides have radically inaccurate perceptions of the views and beliefs of the folks on the other side. And all you need to do in some cases is just give the correct public opinion data and people. Uh, You know, lower their partisan animosity, improve their democratic attitudes and so on. So just as one example of this, we ran an experiment last year, or actually we ran this four or five times last year, where we uh, gave people accurate information about how much the other party, the supporters of the other party, support the use of violence for political ends. And people estimate this at like 40 to 50 on a hundred point scale, that that's the average answer, you know, the level of support for this on the other side, when the actual average for both Democrats and Republicans is around like 10 on a hundred point scale. Now we would like to see that be zero, you know, 10 is too high. Uh, Nobody should be using violence to achieve political goals in my opinion, but our perceptions are, you know, 400% higher than reality. So we found if you just give some simple statistics and we just say, actually, these are the numbers that people go, oh, okay. They revise their perceptions. And then they also revise their own support for political violence. And they ratchet it down by about 40% or so. We even came back almost a month later and resurveyed people. uh, And it it turned out that people still had like a 30% reduction in their support for political violence from just seeing four statistics in a wow. survey a month earlier. So it was sticky. Yeah, so this one's sticky. And informational interventions like that, I I, I have this hunch, it's not fully validated yet, mm-hmm. that information can stick maybe more than a fleeting mm-hmm. emotional experience, you know? Because um, mm-hmm. information, you don't forget it, you know? Like, whereas an emotion no, it takes a lot of brain
1: power if you're actually gonna absorb it, right? So you're actually expending, you know, Physical resources to absorbing this this you know data, and your body remembers that it worked for that, right? Right. I don't know. That's
0: yeah. It's a yeah. yeah. And so um, this is a you know another thing that I think practitioners can consider is uh, you want to reduce people's anti-democratic attitudes. Well, first check and make sure their perceptions of their rival rivals' anti-democratic attitudes are correct because they're probably not. And Uh, We found that an intervention that just corrected those perceptions uh, led people to ratchet down their own anti-democratic attitudes. Uh, And here, I think a suggestion of of the success of that intervention is that uh, that one of the reasons we have high anti-democratic attitudes in the U.S. is that people are thinking they have to bring a they can't bring a knife to a gunfight. You know, like if the other side's ready to just undo democracy, we need to be, too. And then when you get that information, it's like, well, at least in the general public, that's not so much the case. People say, okay, all right, I'm going to cool it down myself as well. We don't necessarily have to have a gunfight.
1: Yeah. Well, yeah, sorry, I'm you're,
0: prosecuting I'm not sure. that metaphor too well, uh, far, perhaps. But,
1: yeah. uh, no, I, I mean, uh, you're, you're equipped for Twitter if you're. Um, <laughs> I mean, <you're going>, like, <laughs> lots of lots of guns and gunfights on Twitter. So. I want to talk a little bit more about uh, sort of how you, so it's clear any other interventions you want to mention? That really, that really popped out, that really sort of performed well?
0: Yeah, thanks for asking, Ron, because there is one more yeah. that I thought the results were really okay. compelling. Uh, so Great. this one we call the Democratic Fear Intervention. And basically what it did was it tried to show vivid imagery of what it looks like in a society that's experienced some kind of democratic collapse. And so it showed scenes of civic unrest, police repression in the streets, you know, really, really messy, scary looking protests uh, and, and police response, military response in countries, again, that are, you know, dealing with some kind of democratic collapse. So places like Turkey, Venezuela, Russia, and, and some other places too, and then culminated with imagery of the Capitol riot, January 6th. And the narration said, you know, this is what it looks like, you know, when democracy dies. And also here, look at this imagery, That looks pretty similar. Like, this is a credible threat in the US. And this intervention was one of the most successful at improving Americans' democratic attitudes. It made Democrats less, or sorry, I should say Americans less likely to support undemocratic candidates. And I think the implication of its success is that right now, we're simply not considering what's at stake. You know, like, we're not considering how bad this could get, how destabilizing it is for a society if you let democratic backsliding go too far. And we're not considering that because we're, we're kind of fat and happy in our democratic situation. It's been 150 years of democratic stability. There's been a hell of a lot of problems with our democracy in that period, especially people being denied enfranchisement uh, for, you know, for a whole century of that 150 years, let's say. But uh, in terms of basic systemic stability, that's been relatively constant. And now it's not. And this video showed this can slip away real fast and it gets really bad. And people responded to that.
1: So I know, I know this is purely, you know, primarily a a quantitative exercise, but do you have any thoughts on why that might have been so effective? And I want to throw two potential ideas out there um, that that come to mind. One is that um, it, it, there's, there's two things. One is that it sort of challenges the, um, the very, almost subconscious at this point assumption of American exceptionalism, right? The idea that it can't happen here, and so it becomes really jarring if you're someone who grew up with the idea that 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 bad stuff happens in other despotic places that um, that are nothing like the freedom you know country, freedom loving country that we are and have and enjoy, um, and so it really sort of jars you out of that. Um, and then the other thought is well, maybe people just didn't know they haven't actually been exposed to the images and the scenes and what actually happened on January sixth. And I, um, I, I'm sure you didn't measure that, but do you have any thoughts, hunches on on why it was so effective?
0: I mean, my thoughts are identical to yours. I, I think that that's exactly what it was, was that people were thinking we have this exceptional stability. I don't even need to think about it. It's just a fish in water, like saying, what's water? You know, like, I, I guess we have robust democratic norms. I never really noticed. We have elections and everything proceeds normally for the most part. And this really, uh, you know, threatened that. And then, you know, it's also a very viscerally effective video because it is very, very unnerving to see video of civic unrest. It just, it looks like a zombie film or something. And it is freaky. You know, it's not hard to get freaked out by that kind of imagery, especially seeing multiple examples and having the connection brought right to your backyard. It's uh, an emotionally evocative intervention. And that's, that's what we need, you know, is like people to know this is what it's going to feel like, you know, it's going to suck and you need to take it seriously and take pains to avoid it, even if that means taking some short-term partisan losses, because uh, it's worth it.
1: Something we've been saying on this show since that happened was that January 6 was really, you know, in a way, it was the uh, the end of the beginning. Um, that it really was the starting gun for what I think will be a lot more political violence in the future. And so I wonder what led you to move beyond uh, just partisan animosity to looking at um support for partisan violence undemocratic practices and and what you think are, i i, I understand when we'll talk about how to deploy some of this at scale and your thoughts on that but and i understand what you're trying to do but i'd also like to know you know sincerely real talk do you have do you have hope um that we'll be able to curb this or do you think that the country's just going to have to go through a very very painful you know decade or two with regard to political violence
0: yeah i think i have a combination of optimism and urgency and and so my thought is, I am optimistic, but I think we will have to repel this threat. You know, I think we will need to take pains to take it seriously and rally everybody on both sides to restore norms, yeah, repel the threat, exp- expel the anti-democratic candidates, don't let them win. Uh, don't don't let these breaches go. Uh, become normal. You know, like we can't let this become a a normalized thing. We have to do everything we can uh, through civil society organizations, uh, media companies, like everybody's got to be on the right side on this. Uh, The various moderate Republican leaders who've stood up, like they need to be applauded and championed and platformed and supported. Uh, I mean, for me, I do political consulting. I'm thinking about who I would you know, sign up for to support in 2024 because I I have done that kind of work before, and I kind of want to you know try to help Liz Cheney as much as folks from my party. You know, I'm a Democrat because um, I think having her keep that voice alive and be that you know that rational, uh, factually grounded voice saying you know this is what actually happened, this is what's over the line. Uh, it's so important. We got to make these lines bright.
1: Okay. If there is uh, someone listening here who is sort of an ideal partner for you to work with—a funder, a donor, a, a social welfare organization, uh, a civil society organization—what um, are the ways that you would most urgently like to be able to deploy um, the intelligence that you have found with this project? Um, if you know, if you had a wish list, what would be at the top of it, and what would you want to what would you want to be doing like tomorrow if if all the stars aligned?
0: yeah, uh, awesome question. I mean, I think that some of the some of the ideas that I would love to see implemented are ones we've talked about here, so I would love to see donor groups on the left and the right really, really purposefully organized to coordinate uh, making donations contingent on public explicit bipartisan endorsements of democratic norms is I think if you can just get that, if we can just get our reps in on that, make people repeatedly exposed to that, it can help us, uh, re-normalize democratic practices and faith in elections and marginalize the voices going the other way because they're really winning, you know, and we need center right leaders, especially, uh, it, honestly, whether it's in through bipartisan messages or, you know, unilateral messages. We need these center-right voices to to stand up and support the the system and the structure. And donor groups can help with that. Major donors can help with that. Social media platforms and other media outlets can help by promoting that content, making it visible. Everybody's got skin in the game on societal stability and and democratic stability. So we we need everybody to work together. I think the other thing I'd love to see is uh, social media platforms uh, and other kinds of gateways to information on the internet take seriously that right now people are in information environments that where misinformation isn't just a problem like we know that's a problem people are working on it they're not working on it as urgently as they should uh, but you know that's a known problem what's maybe not a known problem is the you know really, really inaccurate stereotypes people have of people on the other side. And this research, our research shows that really makes a difference. And that if you can make people's views of folks on the other side more accurate, it it can really improve things on multiple fronts. You know, Whether we're talking about democracy, animosity, support for violence, all of it uh, can be meaningfully improved by correcting people's uh, radical misperceptions of one another. This is a tough thing to do in a media environment. If you're if you're running the washington post or something you're thinking right now well what are we supposed to not cover the january 6th trials that portray these violent extremists you know like we we have to do that right like we have to cover that news uh and yes that's gonna make democrats think that the average republican supports violence more than they do but what are we supposed to do like cover the folks that are not you know being violent like that's not news and that It's true that you need to cover the political violence for sure and that that's part of a natural societal response to it as well. But we just need to think very carefully about how media could generate overall more accurate impressions of folks because people more and more are not having those relationships across party lines in their neighborhoods, in their workplaces, in their families that would help them correct their misperceptions. Uh, So media is going to have to help us.
1: You know, one thing that the publisher set could do is, whenever they're running coverage of 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 things that might skew someone's perception of the other side, is to include a fact based little callout box. Like the coverage itself is important, yes, cover it absolutely, but include a factoid from the Washington Post in a little box that says, "Did you know? <laughs> uh, uh, X percent of Republicans actually don't think this, and, what, and X percent right." Begin to inject uh like really sound um just facts about what you know being aware of how this might shape someone's opinion of an entire party um and and to make sure some some you know some reality is injected into the into the context and also by the way, since most people are consuming this information online there's no reason it can't be interactive in the way that you've designed for your intervention, so it can be right there in the middle of the scroll right. Um, so it's something they could do. I think the pressure on publishers to take an active role, to accept some responsibility in, uh, in shaping public opinion, which they inevitably do. Everyone knows this. Um, uh, it needs to be, needs to be a lot stronger. The the pressure really should be there. Um, unfortunately what we have is the other trend, right? Which is the, the atomization of media into, into echo chambers and silos where people read what they want to read. And, um, and so, this probably takes us down an unconstructive. Um, well, it's a it's a divergent path about the attention economy and um, and the, the the financial incentives for um, media coverage. But uh, that's the that's the big headwind there. Um, one thing I'd really like to see if the FEC weren't uh, so toothless now uh, uh, is you know we require candidates to um, approve this message at the end of all. Uh, official spending, we could also require uh that that approval include a you know five-word sentence about and I will accept the results of this selection right, right. once it's certified, right? Yeah period. <laughs> Full stop. In order to in order to be uh compliant with FEC regulations, you have to uh you have to commit to that. That seems like a no-brainer. Um, unfortunately the FEC is broken and both parties want it that way, but
0: yeah, I would support. um, that. it's just like, if you're going to play a football game, you have to accede to following the officials calls on the field, you know, like that's, that's not optional. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I want to do one other thing, which is, you know, when I was, when I was reading about you, reading your bio, I noted, uh, that your, your research has included the role, um, that emotions play in moral judgments. Uh, that people form about each other. And this is something that really hits home with me as a practitioner because you know, political marketing is all about emotions. Um, it, is, it is pretty true that policy mostly has nothing to do with winning elections. It almost never does. Um, it's, it's all about emotions. People make decisions um, and, and frame their behavior around uh, emotional responses to stimuli. So this made me think of uh, Jonathan Haidt's work in The Righteous Mind, um, Jonathan Haidt, uh, sort of esteemed moral philosopher, um, American intellectual, um, who really made this case in uh, The Righteous Mind. And to me, right, as, a, as somebody who's worked in applied politics for a long time, it was obvious. It was like, well, of course, this is, this is how political advertising works. This is how, uh, This is how the machine works. It's all based on emotion. And the reason you save, used to save most of your TV spending, your, your media spending until the last few weeks of a campaign is because that emotion is short lived and you need people to make their voting decisions based on the emotion that you invoke in your advertising. And, um, so I wonder, uh, as I was reading that, you know, I wonder what, um, Rob's relationship with this work with Heights work and how it, you know, whether or not it's informed, uh, your approach to this study, this research and, um, um, And uh, what can individuals learn from this insight about how emotion drives... Uh, opinions about other people, judgments about other people, and um and and their behaviors. Do you want to yeah. share some about that? Absolutely.
0: Yeah. So John's work in in the righteous mind and other places has has had a lot of influence over some of the other political and moral psychology research that that I've done and that folks in my lab have done. And most significantly, we've done this research on moral reframing, which, given your location, is not not going to be a new idea, um, but. It's, it's basically the idea that if you want to make a persuasive political appeal, it can be very effective to connect it to people's values, their moral values, their fundamental sense of right and wrong, but that also that in a political context, you can't assume that they have the same moral values that you do. You need to figure out what your target audience's moral commitments are and find a way to connect the thing that you're talking about to the things that they care most deeply about. And, you know, you say it that way, it seems really obvious Indeed, if you were trying to sell uh, your, your used car, let's say, you wouldn't talk to somebody about what's in it for you, according to your preferences and beliefs. You wouldn't say, I'm so excited to get your money uh, when we complete this sale because I'm going to spend it on a new television, maybe a vacation, etc. It would be pathological to, <laughs> to approach that situation in that way. Uh, you would talk about what's in it for them. Right, but interestingly, with political conversations, political persuasion, the non-professional kind of amateur reflex, my, my own included, is to to talk about your own perspective on the issue, how this political position, whatever it is, aligns with your values and beliefs and commitments, and so on. Uh, but it's simply not as persuasive. And we're we live in one of the most diverse countries. You can make a case we live in the most diverse country in the world, and. The average political conversation that's an actual persuasion opportunity, whether that's a politician talking to a crowd or somebody talking to their cousin, it's very often crossing major political and moral lines. And if you can calibrate your appeals to fit with somebody's moral worldview, our research and, you know, and, and John's theoretical work, you know, and, and, and research shows that those, con- those kinds of appeals and conversations uh, will be more persuasive.
1: Could you? um, I don't want to put you on the spot, but are there any specific um, examples of what that might look like in practice with a live issue or uh, an issue that has been live in the in the past, so we can help folks think about what it what it sounds like in practice? to do that, one hundred
0: percent. So, what one experiment we ran actually about ten years ago now, when same sex marriage was still really controversial issue. It's it's not totally settled, but it's much more settled now. Uh, We tested a persuasive appeal in support of same-sex marriage that was uh, written to fit with conserva- conservative values of, of patriotism and group loyalty, values that are, are not absent on the left, but are, you know, just less central and less strongly endorsed, you know. Uh, and so, and we were interested, would such an appeal resonate and persuade, resonate with and persuade conservatives more uh, than a more conventional argument for same-sex marriage that advocated for same-sex marriage in terms of equality, social justice, and so on. And the persuasive appeal we wrote, we sat down and scratched our heads, like, how do you make a patriotic appeal for same-sex marriage? And and so we wrote something that said things like, uh, gay Americans are proud, patriotic Americans. They contribute to American society and the economy and the military. They just want to build homes and families and lives like any American's and that sort of thing. So it really made the case, like, you should think about gay people as Americans, like you, who love their country as you do. And we found that conservatives who heard that message supported same-sex marriage significantly more than if they heard this equality and justice-based argument that's more the one that they're used to hearing. And you know, we tested this in a variety of other contexts as well. We've tested it in the context of political campaigns. And so if you have, uh, for example, a Democratic candidate running for president, if that person talks about their, uh, their platform in terms of values of group loyalty, patriotism, respect for tradition, the family, these, more, uh, these values that are associated with American conservatives, uh, that they pick up support. You know, They pick up support from moderates and conservatives, and they build out their base from you know, the liberal and progressive base that they can sort of you know, count on. And those folks, interestingly, do not reduce their support for the candidate. Cause I think from their perspective, they're like, okay, this person's Democrat, the policies they're talking about are policies that I support. And then this value-based rhetoric, it's not the rhetoric that resonates most with me, but it's not, I don't have a problem with it, you know, like what's wrong with the family and, you know, and, and America, you know, things are basically fine with me. Um, I mean, some folks, I'm sure didn't feel that way, but we didn't find a statistically significant drop off in support among the base. So, this is uh, again, it's kind of marketing 101, persuasion 101. Think about what the person you're trying to persuade values and cares about and try to connect to it. But it's not the thing that we tend to do when we're on political autopilot.
1: Yeah. You know, um, I, another more modern, I remember that uh, from, from the, uh, gosh, yeah, it was about a decade ago. Um, the, thing that comes to mind more recently earlier this year in Kansas, right? The initiative, uh, to protect, um, to protect reproductive rights for women. Uh, this wasn't a, it wasn't a, uh, campaign. It was a ballot initiative, right? Um, unbelievable, uh, like rejection of the anti-abortion, uh, laws. But the genius thing about that campaign was that it was, um, it was built around a freedom value. Mm -hmm. Mm Mm-hmm. And a freedom value that traditionally, um, you know, resonates with conservatives and and, and Republicans, and this is a, another really good example of political marketing done done right. When you're appealing to the value structure of the other side, it, it resulted in this enormous win. Now, there are obviously lots of other factors there, sure. Yeah. Um, but that's another good example of the same um, the same thing. Make an argument about why reproductive rights are. Uh, are essential within a freedom lens, within a freedom frame. And you're far more likely to appeal to really deep motivational uh, factors on, on your opponent's side. So Exactly.
0: Yeah, I thought it was brilliant. And my mom is very active in democratic uh, state politics in Kansas and, and worked on that campaign. And she said that this was the message they were getting from Planned Parenthood and other folks was that this is the way uh basically they had they had tested this and found that this morally reframed argument worked better. And and Planned Parenthood actually had worked on a field experiment with David Brockman and Josh Kalla, uh political scientists at, at Berkeley and Yale who implemented moral reframing, implemented this research in the context of door-to-door canvassing around abortion rights. So there's this like, you know, line of work that really, you know, starts with John's work uh and goes through to you know, the messages people were hearing about what, what would be more resonant on the ground in Kansas. And I I think it's great, you know, because I, I think there's a way to think about this technique that says, oh, this is inauthentic manipulation. You know, people making arguments they don't themselves agree with. But I, I really don't see it that way. And I'd, I'd encourage... I see
1: it as empathetic.
0: Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and that's yeah. how I would encourage people to think about it when, when they consider doing it is, you know, instead you're showing respect and empathy for somebody by taking seriously where they're coming from, figuring out what they care most about and making the case to them that they could agree with you on this thing while still being who they are cuz people's moral beliefs they constitute your personhood. You know, people are willing to fight and die for their moral beliefs and you're you're not going to be that successful if you expect people to move a lot on those. Instead, you know, meet them where they are with what they value and make the case for why they could be a part of your po- political coalition.
1: Yeah but you have to do it sincerely and in order to do it sincerely you have to actually understand their values right. and that's i think the biggest hurdle that a lot of people struggle to get past they don't either they don't want to or it's too uncomfortable right to think that someone's value structures uh who are in, which are informing uh decisions that they find reprehensible um might actually be worth getting to know. But in fact, you can be far more effective at moving the needle if you do that. And and also it's like, you know, a good human practice. But anyway. (laughs) Can I I say that the best
0: example I ever saw of moral reframing, maybe just period, and this is somebody who's, you know, run like 10, 12 experiments on this, uh, was when Pete Buttigieg went on Fox News during the 2020 campaign, which people were really impressed by. It's like, wow, this guy's trying to get well, some people were impressed by, it, some people were not impressed by. It. I was impressed by this. He's trying to you win know. the Democratic nomination. He went on Fox News, interesting choice. And they asked him the question about, you know, what's your position on abortion rights? And, you know, you're thinking, wow, how how's he going to steer the plane here? How's
1: he going to get out of this yeah, one? He's, he's yeah,
0: he's screwed now. You know, he's asking about the most charged issue in America, arguably, uh, and, you know, to a primarily Republican town hall kind of audience. And he makes this case that, the so way to think about it is you've got families that are making an incredibly difficult choice you know maybe they've detected you know some sort of very serious congenital birth defect maybe they're making a difficult choice for another reason and that and so he enlists your empathy there right you know so he's like think about this as families making really horribly difficult choices and that and then he said i think that people are better off making those choices with within the family with faith leaders And I don't see a reason why government should be in that room telling them how to make that choice. They should be talking to their doctors, their faith leaders. Yeah. And people like applauded it. They were like, you know, that's a compelling reason for me for why I could agree with you on this. Totally terrific. Yeah. Really
1: impressive. Okay. We're going to put some links in the show notes, folks. Uh, So if you want to check out um, the two, the two interventions, the three that we talked about, uh, the two, the the one that we played, the Heineken ad, um, the other one that you mentioned. Mm-hmm. Uh, we'll yeah. we'll put some links to other, you know, like the Citrix links, so people can step through these themselves Great. Uh, and see test their own knowledge of the other side. Yeah. Um, and uh, are there any other resources you'd point them to? Where can people follow your work? Um, how did you know? Is there is there something you want them to get engaged with? And most importantly, for the for the institutional uh, folks um, and and donors who might be interested in getting involved with your work, where where should they find you? Yeah,
0: absolutely. So uh, folks can follow my Twitter feed at uh, Rob Willer, Rob with two B's. Long story why that is. And uh, (laughs) feel free to to follow me on Twitter. That's a good way to keep up with our lab's most recent research. And our project that we've been talking about the most here, the Strengthening Democracy Challenge, has a a website with uh, all sorts of content on what techniques we found were more or less successful, explained in a variety of formats, uh, hopefully really readable and and understandable for folks. Uh, that's, That's easily available on a Google search, Strengthening Democracy Challenge. And yeah, institutional actors, folks who... Uh, you know, are active in this space and, and want to make a difference, don't hesitate to reach out to me over email. It's not hard to find my email. Just Google me and uh, you'll find it. And, you know, we're really eager to take what we've learned here and use it to, you know, to bolster uh, Americans' commitment to democracy uh, because we see it as, as in peril right now and, and we take it really seriously.
1: Bravo and Godspeed. Rob Willer, thank you for being here and um, welcome back anytime.
0: Thanks, Ron. Yeah. Thanks for having me. And thanks for what you do. This is such a terrific show. It's, uh, I think it makes a difference and I appreciate it.
1: Thank you to everyone at home and on the go for listening. Podcasts tend to grow based on word of mouth. So if you want to help more people discover politicology, you can share this episode or one of your favorites with your friend group, your family, or your colleagues. If you have questions about anything we've talked about, you can reach us, as always, at podcast at And even when we can't respond, we do read everything you send us, whether it's an episode idea, a guest recommendation, or a simple note about how the show has impacted you. And we'd love to hear from you. I'm Ron Steslow. I'll see you in the next episode.